Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk and today I am going to share with you part one of what I would consider my first book called God in the Frontier, The Impact of the 19th Century Burned Over District and the Psychology of Faith. I consider it my first book because with citations, it is 191 pages long. And just a quick word on the sources that I've used. I think for God in the Frontier, I counted about 261 sources. So while I'm doing this, I don't always cite exactly where I'm getting the information. But if you're interested in learning more or you're questioning something that I'm saying. I usually share my sources that I pull from by chapter in the show notes. So if you ever want to look into those, you can find them there. Just to give you a brief overview on what I'm going to be talking about, because I don't think a lot of people are too aware of the Burned Over District, the Burned Over District are areas in western and central New York State, different places around upstate New York, where religious revivals and new religious movements of the Second Great Awakening took place during the 19th century. A lot of people don't know about this history, and yet, in a lot of cases, these movements that took place in upstate New York at this time had not only national but international impact, and their impact has reverberated through time. So part of what's motivated me to write this is it is a piece of local history for me, having grown up between the area of Buffalo and Rochester, New York. I feel like these are some of the stories that are our local contribution to the national story, but often it's glossed over, especially when we talk about the American frontier, because we quickly push that much further west into places like the Great Plains or the Far West, when during the early 19th century, a lot of people forget that places as far east as Oneida or Rochester or Buffalo were considered the frontier land at the time. But there's another aspect that I want to talk about here, other than just what takes place during the Burned Over District, and that is the psychology of faith. I find religion and faith absolutely fascinating. In the previous podcast I've done called The Forging of Humanity, I spoke a little bit about mythology in that, and I make it a point to say how it's important not to take it literally, and that there can be a lot of different interpretations of things. And I think keeping those types of mentalities in mind are important, because a lot of us can be very convicted on a certain belief and kind of double down on it a lot of the times. And... I think that as we talk about religion in God and the Frontier, I want that to be in the forefront of listeners because I'm not here to disparage or disrespect any certain religion, but I'm also more curious than that, and I'm not afraid to kind of point out certain aspects that I think are worth taking a deeper look in without being disrespectful of the religion itself. 
because I find with religion, there's regardless of what somebody's belief system is, there's always something to learn and take away from that. Whether it's from parables, the things that they believe and the stories that they tell and the lessons that you learn from that, whether it's from their particular practices, the things that they do that they can stand up and make certain decisions and act in certain ways that can send very powerful and valuable messages, but also because of mistakes that different religions make. There are lessons to be learned there. And I think it's just as important to shine a spotlight onto those things as well. So my big hope for listening to God on the Frontier, because it is such a sensitive topic, is that you just take the time, whether you are a believer in some of these faiths or not, because the faiths I'm going to talk about cover sometimes millions of people. And so whether you're a believer of these faiths or a believer of another faith, or whether you don't believe in anything in particular at all, everything we talk about here should help remind you to put a mirror up to yourself and see whether or not some of the cognitive processes that take place related to religion and faith are happening in your own head as well. Because I do take a lot of time to really share a lot of up-to-date scientific information related to how our minds and our brains work and associating it with faith and religion. And these are things that oftentimes that even a hundred years ago, especially during the time of the burned over district, they had no idea about these aspects of the brain that now we have a pretty hard understanding of. So take caution because, again, talking about religion is always a very sensitive topic. If you feel that this is crossing some kind of a boundary for you, you are free to stop listening at any time. But I think this stuff is so fascinating to me that it's really hard for me to just not talk about it because there's so much interesting stuff going on here. So with that, I do want to just remind you that if you enjoy what you listen to, please consider making a donation. If you'd like a copy of the book, God in the Frontier, I send PDF copies of the preferred work that you would like for a donation. One thing that the book has that you don't get in the podcast is that I take a lot of time to choose a lot of pictures to really bring to life a lot of these stories. So with that, please enjoy part one of God in the Frontier. Chapter 1. Broad Strokes. Fractures in the Prism of Christianity. And the first part is entitled, The Prism. So the one question I want everyone who is listening right now to ask themselves is whether they believe that there is one divine truth. Chances are, if you follow an organized religion, you do believe that there is one divine truth. The thing that I personally find fascinating 
is how many times people throughout history have declared that there is one divine truth, even though they often differ so much from the previous or the next time somebody has made that declaration. But I think that's because ultimately, when it comes down to it, religion gives people meaning and purpose. Religion gives us existential explanations for things that we don't really fully understand. Religion can bring a form of catharsis and hope and direction. And even more, I think religion can give an agreed-upon method of behaving and interacting with each other, a common belief of what is right and wrong, so that we can build trust with one another. Even laws are often built upon the cultural foundations of the preferred religion of the rulers. Even to this day, governments across the entire planet will cement their chosen deities and perceived morality into their legal framework as evidence of their righteousness to rule. So we get things like holy books in the courtroom, or God in the Pledge of Allegiance. We've had kings who have claimed that their right to rule has been given to them by God. We have government-led prayers. The world over appeals to their God, whoever it is. But at the same time, the message of the one divine truth inevitably breaks down between even the most faithful. For example, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam are all built upon the same foundation, but each has taken a radically different direction from the other. And some might argue that there's at least something to be said that all three of these sister religions can at least fundamentally agree in the same God. The interpretations that each one of these religions have of what God wants them to do differ so greatly that entire cultures develop at odds with one another. And it can lead to what I call a sort of piety arms race of who is the most righteous, despite the differences between the religions. But these ruptures don't just occur between faiths, they also occur within faiths. So the divisions within a single religion fracture the purity of each denomination's message, and it can lead to things like conflict and competition. One way that I've tried to put this into a, a metaphor or a, a perspective is I think of Plato's allegory of the cave. And let me explain that to you if you don't know what it is, and then I'll, I'll give you how I see a different version of this allegory relating to religion. So Plato's allegory of the cave, the idea is that there are people chained up inside of a cave for their entire lives. They are born there, they grow up there, and they die there, and they never leave their chains, and they are always facing one direction, and it is a blank cave wall. Behind these prisoners is a fire that is always fed, and it is always lit, and so anything that passes between the fire and the prisoners gets projected onto the cave wall in front of the prisoners so that everybody who is chained up and looking at that wall only ends up seeing the shadows of things that pass between them and the fire for their entire lives. This means that they have never seen anything that is different from a shadow. 
this is how deprived these prisoners are. And while they are given food to eat, the only things that they ever get to see in front of them are the shadows. Now, in Plato's allegory, we remove somebody from their shackles and they are able to exit the cave. And what they find as soon as they step outside of the cave is an entire world that those who are still chained up in the cave have no idea that exists. They see the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, the water, the fish, everything. And so when this freed individual comes back down and tries to explain everything that they have just seen outside of the cave, those who are still chained up can't comprehend that and are likely to reject what this individual is saying because for their entire lives, all they have seen are the shadows and that is all that they have ever known. This is the idea of Plato's allegory of the cave, is how difficult it is for somebody who has experienced something that those who have never even come close to experiencing that have with comprehending what is going on out there. So I would like to shift this allegory of the cave to a different sort of allegory that I'm going to tell you, but with a lot of similar principles. So I am borrowing from Plato heavily here, and I call it the prism allegory. All right, and in the prism allegory, the way I view it is that there are people still chained up inside of a cave, let's say, but instead of facing a wall and having a fire behind them, they are all chained up around a giant prism that is sitting in front of them. And they are all around the prism on all sides of it. And let's just say there is a light beaming down from the ceiling of the cave into the prism at all times, and that the light does not shift. So what you have are people sitting around a giant prism, looking into it, and with the light being shined down from the top into it, people now see the diffracted light in a lot of different colors. So while a person sitting in front of one part of the prism might see the color red, a person not too far away might end up seeing the color green. And instead of agreeing that they see something different but is still true in both, they would end up fighting with one another that what they perceive is completely different from what the other person perceives, and so therefore that other person must be wrong. And I want to take this prism allegory a little further, and I want you to consider that the prism, every once in a while, maybe every few hundred years or so, the prism breaks, and it shifts the light that the people are seeing who are sitting around the prism to see some new or different colors, to see the shift of color change. Now, when the prism breaks, I don't mean it breaks completely, but there's just a fracture that cuts through it and diffuses the light into different ways. Now, if you are a person who witnesses this change of colors, so for example, you end up going from seeing the color red to seeing the color blue, you would report this but for those that the light did not change when the fracture occurred, they would say, nope, I still see green, for example, and that's all there is. And you're wrong for what you've reported. 
you can see the infighting of those who have not been able to leave their position around the prism, how that what they perceive as their reality have a hard time identifying and understanding those around them who have an entirely different reality. Of course, if you were to be freed from these chains, uh, you could get up and you could walk around the whole prism and get the whole aspect of it. But a lot of times we don't want to get up from these places. And so oftentimes these chains can be self-imposed. So let me give you an example of, of what I mean with this in real life of how this prism works because religious division follows the same idea that i'm giving here in this prism allegory and and the prism allegory i put forth it leaves that dilemma of what do you do when people are only willing to see from their own perspective and not from the others and how sometimes multiple perspectives can be true let's take the case of judaism judaism is the oldest of the abrahamic religions and those who practice Orthodox Judaism will accuse those who practice conservative or reform Judaism of having broken with the proper practices of the faith. Now, followers of conservative and reform Judaism will claim Orthodox Judaism is too narrow in their interpretations. So, all of a sudden, each of these are quick to accuse the other of inaccurate interpretations. We see the exact same thing in Islam as well. The most prominent schism in Islam is the Sunni and Shia sects and, and their divide. After the death of Muhammad, the question of who should rule divided the faith forever after. And so from that, Sunnis and Shias were never able to see eye to eye with one another. So... Further divisions continue to fracture the prisms of both Judaism and Islam, and yet they all claim to have the right and proper interpretation within their own version of their own belief, even against others who practice in the same religion as them. So this leads to hundreds of millions of observers taking very strong stances on their beliefs and being uncompromisingly confident that their own faith is correct and they're distrustful of the perspective of other people, even within their own faith. So it's no different with Christianity. And in this book, I'm going to focus primarily on Christianity and therefore on the Christian prism, so to speak. There have been a lot of fractures within the prism of Christianity. And so it's worth recapping them pretty briefly. I'm only going to mention a few. Obviously, a study on Christianity could be many courses or one person could devote their entire life to studying it. So I'm going to be very brief, and of course that means some nuance or details can be left out. But I want to give a brief overview of some of the biggest fractures of Christianity before Protestantism came around. Oriental Orthodoxy, which today still has over 70 million followers, split from the rest of Christianity in the 5th century over the mortal and divine nature of Jesus Christ. At the time, most Christians decided Christ had both a human and divine nature, which they argued was necessary for humanity's salvation. 
But Oriental Orthodoxy became an outcast for believing that Christ's nature was both divine and human simultaneously. This issue is one that has been hotly debated for centuries, and even to this day continues, despite having very little what I would call real-world impact, even if a consensus was reached on this. But this seemingly small difference to us today mattered significantly, and it was one of the first fractures of the Christian prism. So 500 years later after that, there was another rift that ended up occurring within Christianity, and this gave us two well-known denominations. There is the Eastern Orthodox Church, which is a more decentralized form of Christianity with over 200 million followers today. And then there was the Roman Catholic Church, which was more centralized form of Christianity and the most practiced to this day of all denominations, because today they still have over a billion followers worldwide. And so this leads me to talk about the division of the Christian prism, the fracture in the Christian prism that is most important to this book, and that is Protestantism. Chapter 1, Part 2, The Big Break I wanted to devote an entire section to the creation of Protestantism, even though that this is a book that's supposed to be based in New York, because nearly all of the religious movements that end up taking place in the burned-over district during the 19th century have their roots in Protestantism. So I want to make sure that we have a good understanding of what Protestantism really is, although it is going to be much shorter than an in-depth course on it, right? I always have to pick and choose how much of this I'm going to share, but I do want to share what I think are some of the more important aspects of it. On top of that, I feel like there's a lot of parallels that can be drawn between the burned-over district in New York during the 19th century and the fractures in the prism of Christianity during the time of the rise of Protestantism. So what is Protestantism? Well, it's generally an umbrella term that's used for countless denominations of Christianity that number nearly a billion people today. And it made its own break from Roman Catholicism in the early 16th century as a backlash against the corruption and the suppression of reform by the Catholic Church. It was the end of the Middle Ages, and it was the height of the Renaissance when some of the most famous artists in history lived, including Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo, who themselves were directly employed by the papacy. And even though it was an age of exorbitant wealth, it was also an age of open corruption, particularly within the Catholic Church. 
And I think that this might be best evidenced by the Sistine Chapel. It's one of the world's most famous buildings, and it's the official residence of the Pope today. It's known for its tapestries that were made by Raphael, and its ceiling has been painted by Michelangelo, and it's named for the Pope who commissioned its construction, Pope Sixtus IV. And it was Sixtus's nepotism that really shone forth as his legacy, because it reached new heights when he chose nearly all of his 23 cardinals to be young, handsome males. He was accused of giving out cardinal hats to boys and young men that he had sex with, even if it was only for a night. And most notorious of all were the accusations that he was actually the father of his own nephew, Pietro, who the Pope clearly liked and had sex with as well. And Pope Sixtus gave Pietro basically an open checkbook to spend as much papal money as he desired. And so Pietro spent so much money that the papacy found itself in so much debt that Sixtus had to find new ways to raise revenue for the church by selling offices to the highest bidder and raising taxes. At the same time, he sanctioned the draconian Spanish Inquisition, which is one of the black marks on the Roman Catholic Church even to this day. And he approved of the Portuguese involvement in the African slave trade, the first European nation to fully get involved in that, and thus setting the precedent to grow the infamous transatlantic slave trade. It doesn't take much to wonder that if Pope Sixtus banned this trade or called it unchristian, whether the whole transatlantic slave trade would have ended up happening at all. But this is Sixtus's legacy, and it's interesting that the Pope today lives in a building that holds his name. But one of Sixtus's more controversial ways of boosting the income of the church was making an adjustment to the practice of selling indulgences. By Sixtus's time, indulgences were a pretty common and actually popular way for people to have their sins forgiven, for a price. Despite being a commonly accepted practice, it had found criticism in the past by the likes of people like English friar William Ockham, who's known for Ockham's razor, and Jan Hus, who was actually burned at the stake in the early 15th century for his criticisms of indulgences and papal corruption. So backlash against the Catholic Church had been happening for decades or even centuries by this point. And as the 15th century came to a close, Sixtus not only continued to allow the sale of indulgences, but he even opened them up to be purchased for the dead as well which provided the papacy with a surge of new income, and he used it to continue commissioning expensive papal projects, such as the rebuilding of the Saints Cathedral in France. So all of this meant that by the early 16th century, 
unchecked corruption and nepotism was endemic within the Catholic Church, and it was led by some of the richest people in history who worked together to control both the religious and the political realms of the day. And this is perhaps best evidenced by the likes of Pope Leo X. He was the son of one of the most powerful bankers in Europe, Lorenzo the Magnificent de' Medici. The Medicis were a family aligned so wealthy that members ultimately became Grand Dukes, Queens, and, in the case of Leo, Popes. Naturally, Pope Leo associated himself with other extremely powerful individuals, like the banking and mining magnate Jakob Fugger, often considered the richest man in history. And Pope Leo X had other friends too, like Elbert, the Archbishop of Mainz, and he's from the influential Hohenzollern family. Albert worked to secure powerful positions like the Archbishop of Mainz and the Archbishop of Magdeburg by borrowing money from people like Fugger to control nearly half the votes to determine the German emperor, which would ensure that only the friendliest figures would be powerful enough to be raised to hang out within their orbit. For his part, Pope Leo would encourage the sale of indulgences to help fund the entire process. It is with this background that Martin Luther wrote his now famous 95 Theses. He argued in the 95 Theses that it was faith, not deeds such as buying indulgences and doing penance, that truly built a relationship with God. To many living with Protestant norms today, that might seem self-evident, but at the time it was a truly revolutionary concept, and Luther used the printing press to publish his theses, sending the first copy of it to Albert himself, the Archbishop of Mainz, personally. At the time as well, Pope Leo had issued a papal bull known as the Sacrosanctus, which was aggressively raising money for the reconstruction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome through indulgences. Loyal papal friars who often encouraged churchgoers to go purchase indulgences would use phrases such as, When the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. But Martin Luther was wholly unconvinced. He said, The one who buys indulgences honestly is as rare as the one who is honestly contrite. And he also said, Those who believe that they can be certain of their salvation because they have indulgence letters will be eternally damned together with their teachers. And in his theses, Luther asks, why does not the Pope, whose wealth is today greater than the wealth of the richest Crassus, build this one basilica of St. Peter with his own money? Crassus was one of the richest Romans of the time, and here Luther directly compares him to the Pope and asks why he can't use his own money to build the basilica of Peter. 
And at the same time, while all this is going on, it was the earliest age of the printing press as well. And the papacy saw this as a boon to their indulgence practices, since they were able to finally mass produce them in the tens of thousands. But the printing press cut both ways, sort of like the internet today. And it was this very thing that turned Luther's theses into one of the earliest examples of viral popularity, just like how a meme trends on the internet today. The church, who was so used to controlling everything, didn't realize the printing press would come with popular backlash as well. And Luther was surprised at how popular his theses were because it began to be reprinted all over Europe without him even realizing it. Luther participated in a series of debates that continued to gain him further popularity and by the year 1521, he was the hottest topic around the entire continent of Europe. In England, King Henry VIII wrote his Assertion of the Seven Sacraments, where he denounced Luther's claim that the seven sacraments of the church had no basis in Christianity, and called Luther a, quote, great member of the devil. King Henry then sent a copy of the book to Pope Leo, asking to be given a title worthy of Europe's most prestigious royalty. Henry wanted to be called the Defender of the Faith as an official title given to him by the Catholic Church. After reading his Assertion of the Seven Sacraments, Leo approved of the title and King Henry was able to use it as he pleased. And at the same time, Another powerful ruler, Charles V, Holy Roman Emperor, King of Spain, Germany, Naples, and Sicily, Archduke of Austria, and ruler of the Burgundian states in the Netherlands, convened an imperial diet to discuss on how to rule his vast empire. And during the diet, there was a hearing of Martin Luther, because he was one of Charles's many subjects. Charles was arguably the most powerful man in Europe at the time, and he immediately began to pressure Luther to recant his assertions against the Pope and the Roman Catholic Church. But Luther stood his ground, telling Charles that, As long as my conscience is captive to the world of God, I neither can nor will recant, since it is neither safe nor right to act against conscience. God help me. Charles was not one to take the defiance well, and Luther soon had to flee for his safety, and he was hidden away and protected by a powerful and supportive prince. Meanwhile, Charles began to openly support Pope Leo's decision to excommunicate Luther and his followers. But Martin Luther and his followers were a swelling number in Germany, and holding them accountable became a task so unwieldy that it led to the greatest revolt in Europe between the 14th and 18th century. At first, townspeople advocated for what Luther would have believed to be reasonable demands, such as being able to appoint preachers who only spoke about scripture, the end of serfdom, and the return of common land that had been seized. 
But quickly, things began to unravel out of control, causing Luther to call into question everything that he had wrought. The result was the Peasants' War of 1525, and it was a bizarre and bloody affair, with strange new versions of Christianity popping up that not even Luther could support. Even worse, thousands of peasants were taking over cities by force, kidnapping and murdering nobles and their families. And while Luther at first tried to reason with the increasingly violent movement, he ultimately denounced them as murderous, thieving hordes that used the church reform only as an excuse to murder, steal, and commit all sorts of sin. And, as the king of Germany, Charles V authorized the torture and murder of tens of thousands of peasants to restore order. And while at first it may seem that Charles was working closely with the Pope, this was certainly not the case. Charles was engaged in a war with France over the Italian peninsula, and he soundly defeated France in battle. He even went as far as to capture and imprison King Francis himself. So Charles held Francis hostage for a year while he forced negotiations out of him that were heavily in his favor and made Francis sign a deal by holding his two sons hostage. But as soon as Francis was released, he appealed to the new pope, Clement VII, who just happened to be another Medici, and claimed that the treaty was signed under duress and called for support against Charles to start another war. And so, together, France, the papacy, along with Venice, Milan, and Florence, united under the League of Cognac and were once again instantly back at war with Charles, which utterly infuriated him. Charles threatened Clement with the end of the persecution of the Lutherans back in Germany and immediately sent 20,000 troops to Italy who were underpaid, underfed, and on the brink of anarchy. As control over the soldiers began to disintegrate, the only thing that held them together was the hope of plundering their way back to being well-fed and sufficiently paid. And so they set their sights on the wealthiest target in Italy, Rome. The imperial troops raced there so fast that it was said that Rome did not have time to prepare for their defense. And at dawn, on the foggy morning of May 6th, 1527, Charles's troops poured into Rome, wreaking havoc and committing murder. Holy artifacts such as pieces of the true cross and the crown of thorns were destroyed. Tombs of various popes were plundered. Priests that were not outright murdered were whipped, had their faces branded, or had their noses and ears cut off. Nobles were forced to eat their own genitals and dig through cesspit sewage to search for any items of value potentially thrown inside. Clement was privileged enough to retreat to the most secure fortress in the city and was able to negotiate his way out only by being spirited away at night into the safety of Charles's protection. Suddenly, the League of Cognac was dissolved and Pope Clement no longer disagreed with any of Charles's actions from that point forward. And this, of course, 
brings even further question of the purity of the papacy. These wild events, spurred by the printing press, the near open corruption of the Catholic Church, and European political power games, resulted in a variety of new forms of Christianity that has since been remembered as the Protestant Reformation. Lutheranism, started by Martin Luther, continued to remain a very conservative form of Christianity even until today. And it still shares many of the similarities of Catholicism, but also continues to embrace Luther's firm stance against institutional permissions necessary to get into heaven. Luther made the Bible more accessible with his German translation, and helped unite the multilingual Holy Roman Empire under a common language. And today, Lutheranism still boasts more than 65 million adherents that can trace their roots back to this tenacious man who had the gall to take on the Catholic Church and win. But Luther's victory came at a cost. Without the recognition of the Catholic Church, there was no authority to turn to when popular alternative versions of Christianity started to bubble back up. The same sort of fractures in the prism of Christianity that had occurred under earlier councils, leading to the denominations such as Oriental Orthodox, Eastern Orthodox, and Roman Catholic. One of the most reviled of the new denominations that came out of the Pandora's box of the Protestant Reformation was Anabaptism. While Anabaptists revered Luther's work, Luther himself called for the execution of all Anabaptists as heretics. Anabaptists held a variety of beliefs that were considered radical in the 16th century, but their defining feature was the adult baptism, with their name literally translating to rebaptism. They believed that a person needed to use their free will to be baptized, and that the baptism at birth didn't truly count. Naturally, the Catholics found this heretical and blasphemous, but so too did Martin Luther and other Protestant reformers. Anabaptists attempted to solidify their legitimacy by mounting a stronghold in the city of Munster, with disastrous results. The city was laid siege to by a Catholic prince who punished the uprising severely, particularly the leader who prophesied that he would defeat all of the prince's forces with only 12 men, and was almost instantly killed and dismembered the second that he went out to fight them. Afterwards, both Catholic and Protestant kingdoms persecuted and killed Anabaptists mercilessly. A favorite punishment to administer to them was death by drowning, often called their third baptism. About four million Anabaptists still practice today, but other Protestant denominations such as the Amish and Hutterites and Mennonites are direct descendants of the early Anabaptist movement, which then increases their modern numbers by several million more. John Kelvin was another reformer during this time, who was far more accepted than the Anabaptists, but still looked down upon by Martin Luther and his followers. 
Kelvin, a French theologian who grew up in the wake of Luther's impact across Europe, held Luther in high regard. Yet, differences grew out of the true nature and significance of the Lord's Supper. It was just another example of the seemingly innocuous rift that put a wedge between the followers of Luther and Kelvin forever after. A split reminiscent of the disagreement that led to the creation of Oriental Orthodoxy in the 5th century. Calvinism is a foundational orientation, like a parent pointing the bike in the right direction for a child beginning to ride for the first time, that has come to represent a variety of Protestant denominations today, including Reformed Baptism, Presbyterianism, and others, which easily number over 80 million followers. During John Kelvin's life, his ideas were highly controversial and contentious, but tensions over Calvinism have since cooled to eventually inform some of the most conservative denominations of Protestant Christianity today. Calvinism became a faith rooted in a sort of fatalistic predestination. It's the idea that humans have no true control over their destiny because their lives are in God's hands. But fatalism can be seen as a sort of pejorative term to Calvinists. But it is true that the line where the control of God ends and the control of man begins is complicatedly intertwined at the very least in Calvinism. As an eternal, omnipotent, omniscient being, Calvinists believed that God already knew who was saved and who wasn't before they even took a breath since God is not restricted by time in the same way as mortals. Calvinists believed that to truly become saved by Christ, one must be struck in a sudden fit by the Holy Spirit, a transformation that brings the realization of being a true follower of Christ. In Calvinism, a person couldn't just want to become a Christian, and all of a sudden it happened. They needed to be saved by the Holy Spirit, or they weren't chosen by God. It was as simple as that. Calvinism embraced a set of hierarchy on religious authority, a sort of papacy light, so to speak, which leaders discussed matters of the church in more methodical and intellectual ways. Attending a Calvinist church was a formal, predictable, somber, and serious affair, Yet, like Lutheranism, Calvinists railed against the Catholic Church and believed that it was the Bible, not the Church, that was the ultimate authority on God, and that the individual still played a vital role in their relationship with God. But even as Calvin's ideas began to gain popularity, another Protestant reformer, Jacobus Arminius rejected Calvin's ideas of predestination and gave rise to the competing denominations of Protestantism, such as Methodism, Evangelicalism, and others. Both Calvin's and Arminius's ideas would both come to North America and compete for supremacy in the arenas not already controlled by the Catholic Church. And while all of these changes were happening, King Henry VIII back in England, now honored with the title Defender of the Faith, decided that he wanted his marriage of nearly 24 years annulled by the Pope. 
during the 16th century annulment was the only way a king could separate from his queen other than by death. His devoutly Catholic wife, Catherine of Aragon, fiercely and respectfully disagreed with Henry's convoluted reasoning for the annulment, not only for herself, but for their children. Henry claimed that because Catherine had a short and unconsummated marriage with Henry's brother decades previously, who then died shortly after, that they were living in sin and that the annulment was then critical. He made his argument by pointing to a spot in the Bible that didn't really have any Christian precedent behind it, a truly rare achievement and highly suspect for Catherine. And worst of all, for Henry, Catherine was not giving him a son for his heir. And while the grounds for annulment were weak, it wasn't like the papacy was in the habit of denying wealthy and loyal royalty their wishes, but Catherine of Aragon was the aunt of Charles V and a direct bloodline for him as the King of Spain to have a claim on England, no matter how tangential. And, as Pope Clement was now suddenly very agreeable to Charles, it was clear that the will of Charles superseded that of Henry's. As with most kings, Henry did not take being told no lightly, and in response, he demanded the most powerful bishop in England, the Archbishop of Canterbury, to annul his marriage instead. Faced with the wrath of the king, the Archbishop of Canterbury, broke from the Catholic Church and annulled their marriage, another example of a powerful religious authority submitting to the will of powerful royalty. Catherine was sent to live out the rest of her days in an English castle provided by Henry. So, nearly overnight, it became punishable by death to practice the religion that all of England had practiced for generations. Henry abruptly ordered everyone to cease practicing Catholicism and to follow a new religious authority. Now that King Henry's marriage with Catherine was finally annulled, he was free to marry the woman that caused him to seek the annulment in the first place, Anne Boylan. The entire reason for a nation to switch denominations was not for any divine purpose or well-reasoned arguments about the nature of a man's relationship with God, but instead a king's desire of a woman. Three years later, they would have a daughter together, but that didn't stop Henry from ultimately having Boylin beheaded for incest, adultery, and high treason. Henry had forgotten Anne just as quickly as Catherine, and moved on to another woman that he had been courting while still married to Anne. His third wife died, he annulled the fourth, and once again beheaded the fifth. Only his sixth wife was able to survive the marriage, because this time it was Henry who died. And he died bitter that none of his wives could produce him another son and heir to the throne, as the only one he had with Catherine was often ill. With all of the blame Henry placed on his wives, the irony is palatable knowing today that it is men that determine the sex of the child and not the woman. So this infamously scandalous string of wives taken by Henry was all made possible thanks 
to the Protestant Reformation, which allowed Henry the out he needed to legitimize and delegitimize his marriages at a whim. Henry's deposal of Catholicism and raising of the Archbishop of Canterbury to supreme religious status of his own religion set the foundation for developing a strictly English brand of Protestantism, known as Anglicanism. As a result, Anglicanism has a close resemblance to Catholicism going as far as to have similar specific practices because there was no deeper purpose for the switch. Many fundamental problems Protestants had with Catholicism weren't fixed with Anglicanism, and as a result, more radical Protestants would repeatedly attempt to reform Anglicanism over the centuries. Anglicanism is sometimes referred to as a blend between Catholicism and Protestantism, and today, over 80 million people still look to the Archbishop of Canterbury as the highest leader in the church, despite its origins lying solely in the mere desires of a lusty and self-centered king. But when Mary, the besmirched daughter of Catherine and Henry, returned from Spain to England, to be the rightful heir and queen after the death of her ill and short-reigned brother, she converted the entire country back to Catholicism just as quickly as her father turned it Protestant, forcing the country back to her mother's religion. The punishment for refusing to convert back to Catholicism was often death again. This earned her the nickname that has inspired both fear in Protestant children and joy who have enjoyed a boozy breakfast for generations, Bloody Mary. Those who loyally switched to Anglicanism under Henry were brutally suppressed now under Mary, who felt justified in her actions based on the piety and loyalty of her mother and her blatant disregard by her father. Bloody Mary worked in vain to have a child who would succeed her, but died unexpectedly from an illness four years into her reign. While Catherine's daughter ruled ruthlessly, it was Elizabeth, daughter of the beheaded second wife Anne Boleyn, who became one of the most revered monarchs in British history. It was Boleyn's marriage to Henry that was the first marriage ever sanctified under Anglicanism, and in order to honor and legitimize her mother's scandalous marriage, she decided to, once again, convert the entire country back to Anglicanism after Mary, only a mere 25 years after her father did it the first time. This back-and-forth struggle in England was a microcosm for the entire European continent, which endured conflict after conflict as each monarch decided whether they were going to side with the more conservative Catholic Church or the increasingly commercial-friendly beliefs of Protestantism. But despite Elizabeth's switch back to Protestantism, she did not suppress Catholics with the same vigor as her father or as Mary did to Protestants, allowing the country to finally heal and move forward with less bloodshed. And so it is here now that we understand the relationships of Christianity in Europe that I want to finally move the picture 
to America. Because it is these beliefs that have been happening over the course of centuries in Europe that began to pour over into the New World. And that is what we will talk about next. Chapter 1, Part 3, Colonizing a Belief As England expanded, their colonies, like America, became a land of opportunity for those with more marginalized religious beliefs. Puritan separatists, for example, steeped in the foundations of Calvinism, saw the prism of Christianity very differently than the Anglican royal crown. The Puritans felt that Anglicanism still held too many of the trappings of Catholicism and insisted on reforming it to end the corruption. And so, when they could not change things back in England, the pilgrims who started the colony of Massachusetts in America were Puritan separatists. With a firm resolve, the Puritans left the incorrigible land of England to start a colony founded in righteous, sober, and predestination-oriented Calvinism in 1620. But by 1636, Roger Williams, a dissenter to the Puritan ideals of Massachusetts, was banished from the colony into the surrounding wilderness. From there, he founded the city of Providence and started the colony of Rhode Island, proclaiming it a colony of religious tolerance, which was at direct odds with the northern Puritans of Massachusetts. And we know now that the Puritans did not make the perfect government either. We can just look at books like The Crucible and know that history like the Salem Witch Trials were often based on overzealous beliefs related to their religion. Elsewhere in the American colonies, William Penn cashed in a favor with the king and gave the Quakers of England a place to worship in the New World, creating the colony of Pennsylvania. And just like the Puritans, the Quakers wanted to further reform of the Anglican Church because it wasn't Protestant enough. But unlike the Puritans, Quakers were more tolerant and peaceful to those who practiced a different belief. And today, the Quakers still have over 200,000 adherents. During the 18th century, a Protestant revival called the Great Awakening divided New England Calvinist churches, while other denominations such as Methodism and Baptism flourished. The Great Awakening was a precursor for many of the same themes that would repeat again in the 19th century as the frontier began to expand westward. Concepts such as original sin, eternal punishment for the unsaved, the confession of sins leading to salvation, and increasing informality of the church would continue to be hot topics into the early 1900s, and they even led to a second Great Awakening. Today, there are over 80 million Methodists and 40 million Baptists worldwide, and although Maryland was established as a colony for Catholics, it was too late to meaningfully influence the budding United States. Protestantism had won America. 
it wouldn't be until 1961 when the United States elected their first Catholic president, John F. Kennedy. The fractures in the prism proved Christianity no more unifying than any other religion in the world. Nearly from its conception, Christianity continued to divide itself over mind-boggling existential questions, such as the true nature of God, the form of Christ, the power of an individual's relationship with God, and the amount of power religious leaders should have. Christ's relationship to the Lord's Supper, whether an individual should have the choice to be baptized, when it is right or wrong to get a divorce, the struggle of making a virtuous government, when to tolerate and when to exclude. These are deep, thought-provoking topics that do not have bright-line resolutions. Feeling strongly on any part of any of these topics changes a person's worldview significantly. Who do you follow when the Pope tells you one thing and your king tells you another? And what do you do when they're both corrupt? And what if you don't even know that they are? All of these beliefs are only a fraction of the true discussion happening across the 2.2 billion strong religion, with many other important and powerful individuals and denominations still yet unmentioned in this book. When Protestantism opened up the opportunity for anybody to start their own form of Christianity based on the Bible, it cascaded into a myriad of interpretations on the proper way to follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. Each interpretation inspired countless people and changed the course of history forever. When the 19th century arrived, it was now America's turn to fracture the prism of Christianity in a way that made sense to them. And with the Second Great Awakening, Americans took the old world ideologies and attempted to fit them into the young, burgeoning nation of the United States. And in the early half of the 19th century, the frontier of New York was the front line for the battle of American Christian identity. While the reasons for the divisions over Christianity were different in Europe than they were in the United States, it was the divisions themselves that connected both the old and the new world together. Christianity found no way to be more unifying than any other religion that's out there. In the next chapter, I'm going to bring us to New York, and I'm going to look at the native people there who were worshiping an entirely different religion, and I'm going to talk a little bit about what happened when the Christian Europeans or the Christian Americans interacted with these Native Americans and what resulted.
Thank you for listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as Each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.